and welcome to the Industry 4.0 Community Podcast, your weekly community podcast for Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. We are live, and I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. Thank you, everyone, for joining this week. As you guys can tell on the strategy in the uh, the title here, um, we're going to be going over uh, talking a little bit about Volkswagen, um, the big announcement they made a couple weeks ago. We're going to talk about Siemens and interoperability. I touched on it real quickly at the end of the podcast uh, last week, and I'm going to be answering your questions. I'm going to start with your your questions, but. Um, I hope everyone is doing really, really well. It is frigging October already. It is so crazy uh, how quickly uh, time flies. Um, it's quite insane, actually. Um, and now we're getting into that that interesting part of the year <laughs> where, uh, especially here in the United States, where you you technically have three months left in the calendar year but you really only have about two months of work left because of Thanksgiving, because of Christmas, because of New Year's. And in the engineering world, you're you're basically one of two types of people. You're either the type of person who's going to have four weeks off out of the next 12, or you're the person who's going to be working on Christmas Day and the week between Christmas and New Year's, you know, doing functional acceptance testing and, um, you know, shutdown work. So I've been in both roles, actually like both. Um, I, I mean, for many years I, I worked on Christmas day, um, like six, six straight years in a row. I've never worked Thanksgiving cause that's my favorite holiday and I would never actually work on Thanksgiving day. But, um, I, uh, I, uh, one of the best Christmases I ever had with my family was doing a runoff in, um, uh, West Texas. And we celebrated Christmas, um, in the hotel lobby, me my wife and my kids uh, with the tree that was in the lobby. So, um, so for those of you, you know, everyone, we're coming into October. Everyone thinks we've got three months left. The fourth quarter just started, but we really don't. We got three calendar months left, but we really only have about two months of work left, which is just kind of crazy when, when you really think about it. Um, Jan Tihi, quite late in my time zone, but I'm looking forward for the recording. I would be interested on your thoughts on the Siemens product portfolio interoperability um, as Siemens products together and as well as third party. I am going to be um, going over that today, what what my opinions are um, on Siemens. That'll probably be like the second segment. The first segment, I'm going to answer, answer a couple of questions. Um, uh, no worries, uh, Jan. No worries. Uh, hello, Mario. How's it going, brother? Liam, Echos. Um, all right. Let me pop over here, grab my notes. Um, And uh, you guys will, I'm actually going to be answering a question this week. I didn't think I was going to answer, um, but I'm, I'm going to start with a couple of questions from the community. So let me start with this one. This one was a message to me in a DM on Twitter. Um, so we'll get this. This is a personal question the guy has. Um, and so we'll get this one out of the way. He said, hey, Walker, I remember you mentioning a few weeks ago or a few weeks back that you had recently gone through a divorce. Um, I'm having fun trouble finding that recording, so I hope you don't mind me asking you here. 
Could you talk a little bit more about how you maintained your focus on your work while dealing with the emotional roller coaster that it is divorce? And then he put can be in question in uh, parentheses. I'm um, a huge fan of the channel. You have changed my career for the better and I appreciate it. And I can, and I will appreciate any insight you can provide here. Thank you. And then I leave his name out. All right. So yeah, um, I have recently gone through a divorce. Um, and, uh, the process really took like, uh, two years, but in earnest, it was really one year. Um, and the, I don't have to tell you, obviously the job that we do here is, you know, as in the, the controls world in the digital transformation world is an incredibly stressful, um, job. One of the things I remember observing in the beginning of my career, my very first job was working in a salt mine and I actually started in production. I wasn't even in maintenance or, uh, electrical or in engineering at this point. It was literally my first job out of college shoveling belts. And I remember thinking like I was on a eight hour shift and I remember commenting like at physically thinking and saying something to my younger brother, Chuck, that, you know, we really only work about five hours out of every shift because of like travel time, breaks, lunch. You know, we were, you know, we had to go like six miles out in the mine. So we went a half mile down and we had to go six miles out, spent a lot of time just driving, just getting to our location. And the speed limit was 15 miles an hour. So, or maybe it was five miles an hour. It was really slow. So it took forever to get anywhere. And I remember thinking, man, we don't really, um, we don't work eight hours. We get paid for eight hours, but we don't work eight hours. We work basically five. Number two, I can do this job on autopilot. Like it doesn't require any intense thinking or, you know what I mean? It's like, I could do this job on autopilot. It's just very repetitive. And that is a huge departure from what it is we do as engineers. Like, I don't, I don't think people who are not in the IT sphere and the engineering sphere or in the manufacturing sphere at all understand how much of our brains we have to utilize, how much of our focus we have to utilize to be good at our jobs. Now, granted, when you work for the end user, things generally move a little slower. So if you wanted to take a whole day off, but still be at work, you could probably pull that off. I mean, I remember thinking that when I was an engineer working in tier one automotive there, I mean, there were days where I did literally nothing. Like I was there, but there was no accomplishment. And it was generally out of my control. It was generally, I'm waiting on someone else and there's nothing in the backlog. And so then it's just, you know, don't be seen doing nothing. But on the systems integration side, on the consulting side, on the architecture side, your head has to be in the game 24-7, especially when you're, you're in the middle of a project. It's some of the most intense focus you'll ever need to have in your life. We call it going into the tank. It's a software developer. Software developers will tell you all the time that it, like there's a running joke. When you're coding, when you're writing code, Developers will literally put pieces of paper on their backs that say, you know, do not disturb in the tank. And the reason why is because even if you just ask them one question, you have, you have to go to a place in your brain where you're highly, highly focused and you're processing uh, many variables at the same time to come to an optimal decision in a way that you're just that most people are just not accustomed to doing. Like it requires this massive level of concentration. Um, 
And when you're dealing with something emotionally, it there's no way you can't do this with only 50% of your brain. You can't you can't do this with only 20% of your heart in it. Right. Um, and so, you know, how did I, you know, I've got employees and companies and I'm still an architect and all stuff. And, you know, I went through a divorce. How did I stay focused? Like, how did I get through it? So, um, I touched on this briefly because I, I just, I don't think that this is really the appropriate forum to bring it up, but because this is the, this question was asked, I'm going to answer it. I'm assuming he's going through the same thing. Um, all right, a couple things. The, the first thing I did was I told my team. So when I when when the divorce process started a year ago, really, you know, I my wife and I or ex-wife and I separated a year ago, just over a year ago. But we were sort of working through problems for a couple of years there. And um the kids stayed with me. And so um you know, I had that support network. I had my kids obviously. Um and I have four kids at home. And um, the kids stayed with me and I had that support network. Um, There was a lot of just like open communication within my family, but most importantly with my team. So the executive leadership team and the senior engineers, I told them what I was going through. The reason why is because here at Intellic, we have a running joke. Okay. Um, And I'm going to switch up the joke a little bit, or it's sort of a, a maxim, but I'm going to switch it up just a hair, not, not say it word for word, but we have this joke that like, if, you know, if you catch your spouse with the neighbor, okay, we're the first people you tell, you don't call your mom, you don't call your brother, you don't call, you call us. And the reason why is because your head has to be in the game to do this job. And we need to know that your head's not in the game so that we can support you. Okay. You don't have to tell us all the details of your personal life or whatever. You don't have to tell us that, but you need to let us support you. You need to let us prop you up because there's no way to do this job on autopilot. You can't do it on autopilot. You got to be all into it. Your head's got to be all in. Right. So the first thing I did was I told my team. The second thing I did was we, we went through and we, figured out a way to move back some of my responsibilities so that I would have more time to focus on my, on my kids and, you know, trying to make a decision on whether I was going to actually get divorced or not. And then I just kept everyone abreast of the situation and, um, tried to keep things as civil as humanly possible. And we did a really good job of that. My divorce was actually really super amicable. Um, and it went fairly quickly and, and keeping it amicable and not acrimonious, keeping my team abreast. So I didn't feel like I was going through something the rest of my team couldn't understand. Um, and keeping my support network as close as humanly possible made all the difference in the world. I am not going to lie. I had to take a ba- step back from some responsibilities. And I think if you're going through the same thing, I would recommend you do that. Um, Remember what your values are and lean on the people that you keep close to you and you'll be fine. I mean, for me personally, divorce was really hard, but it wasn't this horrible cataclysmic thing that, you know, that you, you see about on TV and stuff, because I think we kept the right perspective and 
remain respectful. But like anything, if you're going through divorce, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You lose a loved one, you get diagnosed with, you know, a terminal illness, whatever it is, the, the, you know, the life happens. These horrible things happen. That's what your team is there for, which is why it's so important that you're on the right team. This is why values matter. This is why you surround yourself with people who value the same things you value. A wise man once said, we are the, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So if you want to know who you are, identify the five people you spend the most time with and, and average them together. Ask yourself, what does their love child look like? And that's you. Okay. And, um, and it's true. This is why selecting who you associate with is so important. Okay. But anyway, good question. If you are going through that, I wish you all the best. And, um, and I mean that wholeheartedly and I will be praying for you. All right. Um, second question. Uh, what do I do uh, when I don't feel fully utilized? So this guy reached out on LinkedIn. He is a automation engineer. And he said, my name is such and such, and I'm an automation engineer in the Northeastern United States. I got into automation out of college. I'm going on year two currently. I see what being an automation engineer can be, and it is so interesting and can be so fulfilling. Uh, however, I don't feel fully utilized, and it is extremely disheartening. Do you have any advice for someone in my position? I love the industry and its possibilities, but I fear if I stay this stagnant for too long, I won't be able to gather the right experiences to advance my career. I love being an engineer, and I want to be the best. Any guidance you can provide is much appreciated. Thanks, Walker. I love the YouTube channel best, and then his name. Appreciate the shout-out. Um. You know, you're going through something that I think a lot of us have gone through um, in this industry. Um, he didn't say I, I'm a, but based on the way he described his job, I don't think he works for. Um, I think he works for an end user, but through a contracting company. Um, so what I'll say is if you are with an end user. The working for the end user is going to be the most disheartening depending upon how um, like bureaucratic, uh, politically driven and legacy that organization is, okay? Uh, you know, Purnell's iron law of bureaucracy, how, how well Purnell's iron law of bureaucracy has set in at that organization. But that being said, even, even working for the utilizing your capabilities doesn't mean that all is lost. I mean, I've shot lots of videos where I talk about, well, how did I develop my skills if my client, if my uh, employer didn't first understand the value of what it is I was trying to sell to them, right? Or, or I was trying to do for them. And the answer was, I got forgiveness, not permission. So I found opportunities to improve processes to use my engineering skill and the strategies I developed around the unified namespace um, to first improve my job, make my job easier. And by proxy, I was making the jobs of the people who had my job easier as well. So a really good example here would be, uh, when I was a, an, um, I worked in the electrical group for, in a steel mill. Okay. And my job was 50% engineering and 50% support. Okay. 
Uh, so on certain shifts, my job would be to just support the production teams. So I would be the one troubleshooting any automation issue that we ran into, or I would be die. I'd be working with the electrician and mechanic to diagnose some issue, say on the stacker or in the rolling mill or with the DCS system. The other half of my job was doing projects and that was dependent upon, we were on rotating shifts and it depended upon which shift I was working on. So like in any given week, if I was on say a day shift on a Friday, when there, when we had many people from my department in, then I was working on projects and there was one person who was tasked with being the support engineer. Okay. So, but if I was the only one on, then I wasn't doing any project work. I was just supporting production. Okay. Well, supporting production meant, you know, to keep us busy, they would give us these rounds that we would have to do. They'd give us a clipboard with a piece of paper and we'd go take a bunch of measurements. We check the level in some tanks. We'd check the pressures over here and the temperatures over there. And, you know, we'd, we'd, uh, inspect the variable frequency drives. And, you know, we do all these pretty ridiculous things, right? And it was on paper and then I have to go make a copy of it and I have to file it and all this jazz. I remember thinking they're only doing this. So I'm not sitting in a chair taking a nap. Like, so why don't I just automate this? So I, I went through and I, and, and so I used my skill to just go through and I said, you know, I'm going to automate this process. So I'm going to hear all the data points on this sheet that I can just pull automatically. All I got to do is install Wonderware Historian, put in a, you know, put a driver in DAS ABC IP and um, I'll be able to connect to these um, data points and extract them automatically. The second thing I need to do is I make, I need to make a, a digital form, a, U, a, a software-driven UI to collect the rest of the data and merge both of them together into one digital document that I could then just email out. And I could reduce, it was called the round sheet, I could reduce the rounds from three hours of my shift, which is how long it took to do it by foot, to down, down to like 15 minutes. And now... I could take that time and I could work on my projects, the stuff that I wanted to do. Like, uh, you know, I was tasked with building the automation for a, you know, a, a rail car that moved back and forth through the shipping department. Right. Um, I was tasked with um, doing data collection on some of the more remote um, processes in the rolling mill. Right. So I went through and I did that that project myself. I wrote what I, I sketched it out. Here's what I'm going to do. And then I just did it to make my job easier to free up the three hours for me. Then I showed the other guys in my department what I did and offered to them to let them do it if they wanted to do it as well. And here's how you, here's how you access it. And they all adopted it. Okay. Then it was once all of us had adopted it, our manager had to sign off on it or come up with some reason why we couldn't use it right? It's what you do is you use your engineering skill to fully utilize yourself, not have someone fully utilize yourself on your behalf. That's the approach that you take. One other piece here, and I can't stress this enough, okay? There is no reason why anyone coming out of college right now or coming out of tech school or coming out of high school, getting your first job, there is no reason why you have to go work someplace 
or co-work for an organization that doesn't share your values. Okay. So for me, I always made sure I selected employers who believed in a lot of the same things I did that like people matter. They're not a number. Okay. Um, that le uh, being a leader is a responsibility and a privilege, but it doesn't make you special, right? It just means you have a skill set that makes you better suited for leadership, but that isn't, that isn't a credit to you. It's a responsibility being entrusted to you, right? And uh, I'll say this. I sent a message to uh, my boys this morning. You know, and I said, um, you know, you boys need to be making a dent in the universe, maximizing your genetic potential and building a legacy. Okay. Real men are stoic. They're calm under pressure and they're purposeful. So make sure you hit the gym. Make sure you build a network of similar men, get educated, start a business, be a mentor, leave your mark, build a legacy family by loving through provision and protection. That's what I sent to my, my boys this morning. I sent that because being a leader, being a father is a responsibility. It's a great responsibility. And I made sure that I only worked with, for companies that understood that the, the people that they put in leadership were responsible for something greater than the bottom line. Okay. And that is they're responsible for the impact on the community, impact on their people. Um, you know, the other day, Another example here on the values piece and why this is so important and why you might feel not fully utilized. Two, two stories I have for you guys. I wasn't going to tell these, but I'll tell them now. I came into one of our uh, morning huddles the other day, a couple weeks ago, and um, someone said in passing that a member of our team was sick and that they were, you know, they needed to go to the the, I don't know if they had to go to the hospital, the emergency room or like the urgent care or whatever, but that it was something that popped up quickly and they were going to be unavailable today. And, um, and they sort of just moved on right quickly to the next thing. And I went, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I just like literally stopped the meeting and I'm like, no, we're not done there. So, and I asked these questions, does this person have local support? Do we need to fly somebody out there? Like, is this person going to like, do we need to send somebody so that they have support while they're like going, going through this? This is part of what being a team and a, a family at work means. Um, and another teammate disappeared for a couple of days, like literally just didn't answer the phone, didn't miss a couple of meetings, right? Just disappeared. And it, percolated up to me. This is like two weeks later, percolated up to me. And, and I said, I, I want to talk to this. I want to talk to this person. And I was on a flight actually coming back from ICC. I was in the airport. It was a, and I, you know, I asked the chief operating officer to set up a call with this person and, and they got on the call and it was me, this person and the chief operating officer. And I, I said, Hey, what's going on? And, I'm like, and I could tell like, you know, that he was nervous and freaking out and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on. I'm not here to get you in trouble, man. I'm here to help. Like what's, you know, what's going on? How can we help you? And I meant it wholeheartedly. 
you know, and he was like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going through a breakup and, and my, you know, my fucking, my head's all fucked up and, you know, it's really been a really tough time. And I'm like, okay, we got you, man. I said, what do you need? You need three days off. You need a week and a half. You need two weeks. What do you need? What would be, what would help you the best so that, that, so you can, you know, the only thing that you have to promise me in return is I asked him, are you exercising? Are you, you know, getting endorphin rushes or anything? He said, no, I, you know, I used to, but I really like to. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, why don't we give you the next week and a half to do whatever you need. If you want to work, you want to check in on your projects, you can, but we'll operate as if we, you know, we won't depend on you to do it. That way there's no pressure and you focus on what you've got going on. And the only thing you've got to do for me in exchange is you need to promise me that you're going to exercise every day. That's it. And he said, okay, I appreciate it. You know? And it was a lady sitting next to me in the lounge. And she like, after I hung up, she like, she said, I have no idea who you are or what you do, but I would come work for you any day. And my point is <laughs> she didn't know what we did. She didn't know what the job was. The only thing she cared about was the values piece. So if you, if you feel like you're underutilized with your organization, or you feel like the organization you're with is the wrong organization, you need to ask yourself why, and you should start with values. Like, does this organization value the same thing I value? And in order for you to ask, answer that question, you have to first start with what are your values, right? So for me throughout my career, it was many things, but I wanted to work for an organization that cared about having a big an impact much larger than just the commodity they were creating, the products they were creating and selling. I always wanted to work for an organization that wanted to do something bigger. So when I worked for Cargill and I worked in the salt mine, I was on the Cargill Cares Committee and I was on the mine rescue team. Mine rescue was designed, we would train um, two times a month and we'd go to competitions every year, a couple times a year. And we would train in Beckley, West Virginia. We would learn how to uh, do um, rescue and recovery after mine accidents. And our team would be in every mine, um, underground mine has one of these teams, but you are also backup teams for other mines in your area. And so whenever there's a big major mining event, you see people trapped in mines, it's those rescue teams that are going and doing all the work. Okay. The company I worked for took mine rescue incredibly safe, incredibly seriously. The Cargill Cares Committee was tasked with deciding which charities in your local community got the charity dollars that we were donating every year, which was a percentage of total revenue. It was a lot of money, six figures, a huge amount of money we're giving away. And we were vetting the people who were giving that. that I, I, that's why it was hard for me to leave Cargill because they wanted to make a huge difference in the world. It wasn't hard for me to leave Vanguard because I realized Vanguard, which that was the printing company I worked for, they didn't give a shit about, you know, they treated people like commodities and they didn't care about making a difference in the world. It's very easy for me to leave. It was really hard for me to leave Nucor Steel. They never had a layoff. They Nucor genuinely and honestly cared about their people and they implemented a, a, a you know, compensation package that was designed to never hold anyone back. It didn't matter what your role was. You, how much you made was always going to be a function of your contribution to the organization, yours and your team's. 
and and your salary could double if you were if you were a highly productive person and you were on a highly productive team you could you could double your salary easily and when i was at borg warner automotive they didn't share the values i did they didn't I, in, in they they were a good company i like working there i truly enjoyed working there but we didn't have common values they were just too big to have the values i had and then the integrators i worked for the first one had my values the second one didn't and, and i squared r was the one that i worked for the first time and integrity integration resources right christian-based organization so values matter okay so if you're not fully utilized start with you know maximizing your your skill set to better to make your job easier and do that at scale so it makes your peers jobs easier and and then assess does this organization understand that i can really make a difference and are they going to tap into that and then ask yourself what do i value what is this company value Nobody should be working for a company that doesn't share their values because we live in an age where you're always at work and always at home. And I, I cannot stress how important that is. I cannot stress. Okay. Uh, Josh, any comments in here I need to answer to? Uh, I'm going to find his advice equally beneficial. Um, oh, wow. There's a lot here. Uh, all right. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Busy work isn't as our, hey, did you hear about Fireware Technology and I4 Trust Initiative? Yes, I did. Mr. Mamantos, we'll add that in there. Uh, T-Rocks, you should put into the title that this whole stream and channel, as it seems, is solely addressing men or guys, since you obviously believe there are no successful women in the business world. Yeah, that's horseshit. That's not what I believe. In fact, um, there are no... Uh, there are no women who have ever worked here who would who would agree with you, T Rocks. Um, I will say I will tell you this, and I, I've talked about this before. One of the things that we did, um, T Rocks, on June on Juneteenth. So here in the United States, Juneteenth is a very big day. June nineteenth, it is the day, especially here in Texas, it is the day that really slavery actually ended. It was when the last slaves in the United States were freed. Um, and and that took place here in Texas, um, in the southern part of the state. And on June nineteenth, uh, wasn't this last year? Because I think it fell on the weekend, but it was the year before. We took it, was, it fell on a Friday, and so I asked the team to schedule a meeting in the morning on Friday to um, to let's talk about June nineteenth. Let's talk about Juneteenth. And I said, and I asked the team what is the significance of Juneteenth? And at this time, like, you know, people on Twitter and all this shit were, you know, the companies were like changing their logos and, you know, all, all that, 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 that's not meaningful in any way, shape or form. It's, it's honestly, it's, it's pandering and it's insincere. So I, I told our team, we're not going to change our look. We're going to do something more meaningful. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a lesson in lieu of the staff meeting today. We're going to have a lesson on June 19th. Okay. We're going to talk about its significance. Okay. We're going to talk about the ugly scar that was slavery in the United States. Okay. We're going to talk about what is, what actually is racism and how has it impacted our industry? Okay. And then we're going to take the rest of the day off. And as a company, we're going to eat it. 
Okay. You guys aren't going to build today. You're not going to do any work today. Today, you're going to have this entire day off and you're going to know the reason you have this day off is because it's June 19th and it's significant. And it's a day when we should all significantly consider um, just how but a, much of a black eye slavery was on our nation. Okay. One of the data points that I brought up was I said, how do you know it, what is systemic racism? Right. What is it? Okay. T rocks who, by the way, I think you're a dick. Okay. Cause you made assumptions about me that are not true. Right. So if you never watch another fucking video here again, I could give a rat's ass. Okay. Um, you made assumptions about me that are simply not true. Okay. I talked about how all the people who had er ever interviewed here. And I said, I looked at all the resumes that we had ever interviewed here. Okay. Or all the resumes we had ever received, not the people we interviewed. And at the time it was something like say a hundred, it was over, it was a hundred close to 200 resumes. And for, and for those who had selected their race in their, when they submitted, uh, less than 3% were people of color. And I said to my team, that is systemic racism. Like people of color can freely apply here. We have to ask the question, why haven't they? Moreover, Let's ask the question why, when we look, only 4% of all the applicants are women. The same data point. Only four out of every 100 applications we receive at Intellic or 4.0 Solutions are females. I make a point in, in my videos or when I, we're doing training sessions, I will... I'll correct myself if I say guys, and I don't mean guys as in males. I mean guys as in the vernacular term for a group of people, right? Now, some people will argue that's the patriarchy and all that stuff. No, it isn't. It, it comes from popular culture and extends from the 1980s, okay, which are where I grew up, okay? The, the term guys for a group of people comes from the 80s. It's not an extension of the patriarchy. But I make a point to say guys and gals, even though a lot of times there are no women in the room. It's just men. But only, only uh, less than 5% of all applicants are people of color or, or women. I didn't do that. That's just the data. Now we should ask why, right? Obviously. Um, Richard Blanchett said that I will say women are underrepresented in manufacturing. I agree 100%. I recently switched to a non-manufacturing company and they were complaining how they only have 30% women in the org and I couldn't help but sad or chuckle. Yeah, because that number is less than 10% in manufacturing. <clears throat> and I don't think that that's, I don't think it's a conscious thing. I, I know from our side, the, the, the percentage of people who apply here who are women is microscopic. It's a microscopic number. Um, one of the best engineers we've ever had here, who, by the way, she's, she's one of the top five engineers I've ever worked with in my entire life is a woman. Okay. She's phenomenal. Um, anyway, 
interesting. You see it that way. I'm a successful woman and I find his advice equally beneficial. I'm not, nothing I say here is meant for directly to men. Although as a man, I may say things that may only apply to men. Um, all right. Let me go back to, let's switch over to, to Siemens. Yeah. I think that that was uh, T rocks or whatever your name is. Um, that was a cheap shot. And uh, it shows more about how you perceived me without knowing anything about me. And that's fucked. That's part of the problem. You're part of the problem. Let's talk about Siemens here. Um, are they serious about interoperability? Okay. I want to start with, let's talk about the Siemens stack first. Okay. So that, because especially if you're here in the United States, you're not going to be really familiar. Like everybody knows the Rockwell stack, right? You know, which at what is what products they offer at basically each layer in the stack for the most part. Um, but we'll talk about the Siemens stack. So down at the edge, you've got all industrial automation, right? So you've got PLCs, uh, HMIs, you have um, sensors, you have motion controllers like the D445 motion controllers, right? Then you have industrial edge directly above that, which is just basically edge computing, which there is an overlap between industrial automation and edge compute because Siemens more and more is embedding edge computing capabilities in their industrial automation offerings. Okay. So they really have like a four layer stack instead of a five or six layer stack. So you got automation, you got industrial edge, then you got MindSphere, which is their IIoT platform offering. Okay. Um, they're in terms of their digital transformation stack. And then above that, their cloud offering is Mendix. Their AI ML cloud offering is the Mendix offering. So are they serious about interoperability? So I'm going to go through a bunch of these questions that came through, and then I'll, I'll answer the question in more detail. So Aaron wrote, um, where do you guys rank Siemens outlook on interoperability compared to other big companies like Rockwell, ABB, Honeywell, GE, Mitsubishi, Omron, Bosch? I'm curious who seems to be plowing through their market, their marketing teams, old school, full stack solution partners only sales approach the most. Disclaimer, I'm too lazy to double check if all listed companies have a solution for every layer of the stack. Um, yeah, you didn't. I mean, ABB does, Rockwell does, Honeywell does, GE does. Mitsu, not so much. Most of the stack, Omron, really more edge. Uh, Bosch more edge. So, but it, it was pretty close. Good. It's a fair question. Um, and then Aaron followed up with, do you think that a 4.0 systems integrator can get most of their tools to work with whatever full stack architecture you want, or are they alluding to architecture comprised of software from Siemens and Siemens approved partners only? All right. So, um, To an I'll answer the first questions first. Where do I rank Siemens Outlook on interoperability compared to the other big companies like Rockwell? Um, if we're going to include um, Microsoft and Amazon in the group, okay? So if we're going to include Microsoft and Amazon in the group of big companies, and you could make the argument because... You have edge compute for both, you know, Microsoft and, you know, both Microsoft and Amazon support 
industrial protocols and they have edge compute capabilities, right? That doesn't get you down to the process automation level, but because they support OPC and they got edge compute capabilities in their IoT edge solutions, it would basically go AWS first, and, um, Microsoft second, Siemens third. If you if you don't include Amazon and Microsoft, then Siemens is at the top of the heap. Okay, Siemens would be for, of the big companies. Siemens would be your number one outfit. And the reason why, and I mentioned this last week, I've had conversations with at least a hundred different reps at um, Siemens in various product groups. Okay. And what the one thing that stands out to me is when you, when you ask Siemens, a C, someone who works at Siemens, what Siemens digital strategy is for industry 4.0, they all give you the same answer. So that means Siemens has a digital strategy. Okay. If you ask them, well, what would Siemens ideal architecture be if we're going to use a Siemens stack in and understanding that not all solutions will be a Siemens solution or a Siemens partner solution? What, what, what does that architecture look like? They will show you an architecture that contains native um, Siemens protocols, native Siemens field bus and um, um, IT protocols, plus in IoT protocols like MQTT. They'll show you, a, they'll literally show you a diagram that shows you. an OPC on there, Um, if you were to ask Rockwell, for example, Rockwell is going to give you a connected enterprise response. I mean, it, it's a, a solely a Rockwell stack. And if you were to ask, let's say you go over to PowerFlex group, go to Automation Fair, go talk to the PowerFlex product manager, Go to go talk to the Control Logics project man, product manager. Go to the Factory Talk Innovation Suite product manager, um, and ask them what Rockwell's digital strategy is for interoperability. You you're going to get crickets, or you're going to get three completely different answers. Okay, Siemens is definitely, definitely, definitely serious about interoperability just on those grounds. Okay. Um, number two, I want to answer the second question. Do you think that a 4.0 systems integrator can get most of their tools to work with whatever full stack architecture you want, or are they alluding to architecture comprised of software from Siemens and Siemens approved partners only? All right. Obviously Siemens and any other OEM is going to prefer that they're selling you only their solutions. The difference between Rockwell and Siemens, in my opinion right now, Siemens has accepted that they're never going to have 100% of 100% coverage in an organization. That there has to be mechanisms to easily integrate third-party non-Siemens partners into a Siemens infrastructure. But Rockwell, that is not Rockwell's philosophy. It's also not Schneider's philosophy, weird, weirdly enough. 
Um, and I'm not sure why. And I and I don't know what ABB's philosophy is there. Um, I just don't talk to enough people at ABB. Um, so I would say by default, they would rather you go with all Siemens, but they have a solution externally. Siemens has a long way to go. Okay, Siemens still allows politics and bureaucracy to dictate their decision-making far too much. Um, let me see. Oh, I wanted to mention, um, is Siemens mind fear, Tomas, open architecture and tech-based, or is it drive customers to a vendor lock-in eventually? Um, it is definitely open architecture, especially if you're leveraging MindSphere through a WinCCOA integration. Um, but even by itself, MindSphere, the only complaint I have about MindSphere is when you ask MindSphere about, well, or you have the MindSphere group, about consumption of data into um, MindSphere from external um, or from and Siemens um, data points, they're going to give you a pretty a pretty generic um, OPC response. And if you ask them, well, how are you leveraging MQTT or other IoT protocols? They're pretty standoffish about it. Um, Richard Blanchett, Siemens seems to be building from the plant floor up. I'm a little at a loss on how you can build a digital architecture that way. Um, I would argue that that's the best way to build it, Richard, from the plant floor up. Now, to your point, I don't know how you could pick your IoT protocol from the plant floor, which is foundational. We just shot a, a video called What is the Unified Namespace, where I answer nearly all. I just shot a whiteboard video um, you know, before we, we did pre-production for this. You know, it's probably, I don't know how long it is, maybe 20 minutes. It's not like any other unified namespace video I've ever shot before. And there's there's four four pillars of what is the unified namespace. You know, the first one is it's a single source of truth. Second is it's structure and events of the business. The third is it's the um, hub that all the smart things talk through. And number four, it's the foundation of your digital architecture. To Richard's point here, you know, how do you build architecture from the plant floor up? Um, how you can build a digital architecture from the from the plant floor up when the plant floor doesn't have any of the protocols you need for a digital infrastructure, digital architecture. So that, and I, I'm assuming that's what he's he means there. But I think the solutions that you build from the plant floor up are the are one of the foundations of your digital architecture. Uh, because you're solving plant floor problems. You should start with solving plant floor problems. Uh, to follow up, they, the OEM, want to sell a PLC, then sell the cloud services. Right. That That is not the way to go. Correct. That's the Rockwell model, Richard. Josh, pop Richard Blanchett's comment up. To follow up, uh, they, OEM. Yep, thank you. Uh, I th and then Richard also said, I think Ignition has some cool stuff, but they're still missing the boat on things like what Databricks and Snowflake are doing today, and don't get me started on modeling uh, a cluster. <laughs> what a modeling uh, clusterfuck that is. Let's talk about inductive automation here. I, I forgot to mention this, and then I'll go back to the, the questions. Um, one of the things is somebody reminded me that there was something that really stood out at ICC X this year. 
if you went to any of the sessions, um, our language, the you know terms that I've coined and that our team has coined, strategies we've developed were everywhere. I mean, they were they were in the keynote address, they were in Arlen Nipper's presentation, um, they were in a bunch of other presentations. I didn't get a chance to see what JP was doing, but I'm assuming JP, um, you know, talked about stuff from the community as well, right? And somebody had asked me, well, hey, you know, I didn't hear, you know, they didn't mention your name or 4.0 Solutions name or whatever. Um, you know, this was after the podcast last week. And they're like, does that does that bother you? Uh, no, it does not. Uh, I don't need credit for like the architecture we've created. Here's what I care about. I've said this before. And I'll say it again. I care that people don't hijack what this means or what the mission is. So when I, when we talk about unified namespace, if someone tries to say that a unified namespace is something other than these four pillars of single source of truth, structure and events of the organization, the hub through which the smart things talk, and the foundation of your digital architecture, your infrastructure. If somebody tries to say UNS is something other than that, I'll be upset. So if they're going to use terms that we use in our architectures and that we teach people on, and they try to redefine what those terms mean, then I'll be pissed. I don't care if my name gets attached to it or 4.0 solutions or anything like that. And that happens all the time. People, I mean, literally there was some, I don't know, it was an integrator like in Australia or something, literally just copied what we say in our videos word for word. Like didn't even bother to like modify it to make it their own. They literally took some of the things I've said in videos, like quoted it, like entire paragraphs and, and passed it off as their own marketing material. And I think Somebody in the community is the one who sent me their website was like, Hey, look, these guys like literally copied you, man. As long as they don't redefine the words, I don't really care. At the end of the day, the impact is what matters. So if inductive automation and the people who are presenting at IA are using our architecture and our language, I'm totally good with it. As long as they don't redefine it, I'm, I'm all good. I'm good with it without them attributing it to us. As long as they don't try to redefine what it means. Okay, so you don't try to redefine what edge driven is. Okay, obviously, report by exception is not something we, you know, we didn't coin that phrase. I mean, that's a technical element, right? Um, but as long as they don't try to, they don't try to redefine it for their own, their own benefit, own marketing benefit. Nah, I'm good with it. Um, Ignition has some cool stuff, but they're still missing the boat on things like what Databricks and Snowflake are doing today. And don't get me started on modeling. Um, here, I'll say this. Here's what I think inductive automation's biggest mistake is. Um, I got this question last week, too. This was a DM on Twitter somebody sent to me, which is why I started posting on Twitter again. Um, I, By the way, I didn't, I didn't post on Twitter for a few months while my divorce was being finalized. I just tried to stay off of all social media. That was another good recommendation for anybody. Um, I, inductive automation enters into like strategic partnerships with companies, with vendors and stuff. And they find out after the fact that maybe that, oh man, you know, this product, their product isn't as good as we thought it was or whatever, or the leadership isn't what we thought it was. And they're pretty slow to break that partnership off. And so they, you know, once, you know, they, 
I, I wish inductive automation was, was, um, was faster to cut poor product partners out than, than they are. I would say that's their biggest weakness. I mean, in terms of like the people, developers, strategy, philosophy, I mean, they're, I, I really don't think anyone, you know, I, I, I love the people at Tatsoft and I think they're rock, rock solid. By the way, Dave Hellier, I did get your email. Sorry. I will respond to you, Dave. I am interested in giving you the feedback. Sorry, brother. It's, it's on me. Um, but I completely. Matt Paris, allowing others to use ideas without requiring credit is a concept common in open source communities. Not adopting this culture is blocking innovation for OEMs and integrators within manufacturing. 100%. Agreed, man. You know, at the end of the day, it just, you know, like uh, we had a, one, a member of the community. I had a call yesterday with a member of the community who took, who took the DTMA product that we created and made it and augmented it and made it better, like uh, made it easier to use for customers and, and end users and stuff, and also made it more living, the DTMA process. And so we had a call and I, and I was thinking like in that call, you know, this is so groundbreaking. Like what we do in this community is so important because my, the, the, the experience I've had over the course of my career is like, if, 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 if a, if a, a member of a community came back and basically took a product that you, that you own or you created and they modified it. And they were like, Hey, we want to go to market with this. I think most people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with, you know? And I was like, no, this is dope. Like here, I think you need to fix this, 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 and let's work together on it. You know, it's like, that's, I think that's the, this is the values thing we were talking about earlier, how important it is to work for organizations that share the values you have. It is better for humanity. If we tear down the, the, the barriers that keep the brightest among us from collaborating with one another to, to create the best products. And those barriers are these artificial barriers of this organization you know, these articles of incorporation versus these articles of incorporation versus these articles of incorporation, which is how you create a company. Like we have to figure out ways to break down those barriers and like, I'll reference the OPC foundation only because Matt Paris is the last one to comment. You know, Matt is a, is a, um, OPC needs to get fixed quick evangelist, right? He probably is the, the loudest voice, um, on that, on that boat. I'm right there with them. Um, the OPC foundation is a, is a hurdle to innovation, not a leader. And the reason why is because it's an organization that's supposed to be collaborating for the greater good of the industry. Okay. But it's an organization that allowed itself to be hijacked by big companies who are not interested in doing greater good for the industry. They're only interested in influencing the brand of OPC, the decisions made behind the brand of the OPC foundation to only benefit that organization. I'm talking to you, Microsoft. I'm talking to you, Rockwell. Back off. I mean, there are many companies in there. I want to, I could pick on a lot of them, right? It's it. You have to tear those barriers down. We have to tear those barriers down and make it as easy as humanly possible to collaborate. And one of the things that we're looking at doing, and I and I, I believe we're going to be able to pull this off, is that 
community member I met with yesterday and the and a pre another community member that made DTMA products. We are we're gonna we're gonna I think all three of us are gonna be able to collaborate so that we still have that one common data set in the background that that all that all the products are operating off of. And you can only do that with an open source mindset. You know, and and that's something that's gravely missing in industry. Now I am a capitalist and I understand that like, you know, you have to make money. You know, if you're going to invest capital in innovation, you're going to do that. Most people are going to do it with the promise of money on the back end or more capital, right? That, yeah, I think we take that to the extreme sometimes. I really do. All right. Um, let me I'll make sure I covered everything. Um, We'll go over. Uh, I I want to touch on something Richard saw, Shaw said in a thread on Industrial Edge, okay, um, that I think is a a very important statement that I we should never forget, and and it's one of the challenges in digital transformation. Richard Shaw said that you know I think part of the problem is that digital transformation is inherently highly technical which is which most leadership can't possibly understand. And by the time you dumb it down enough, it looks just as hand wavy as those that want to trap you in their stack. So like Rockwell, Siemens, Emerson, Schneider. Okay. And um, I just want to say, I couldn't possibly agree with what Richard said here more. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we face in digital transformation, and I've talked about this, manufacturers need to move away from putting MBAs in charge of their organizations, and they need to put technologists in charge. Right? It's it's no secret that the most advanced companies in the world are led by technologists, okay, not MBAs who have accounting and um, uh, accounting and um, uh, finance backgrounds. Okay. So, and I want to use um, Volkswagen as an example. Okay. If you look at the, um, of all the legacy companies, legacy manufacturers out there. Okay. That is those who existed prior to the, the fourth industrial revolution. Do you know who has the highest digital transformation maturity score of all the legacy manufacturers we've evaluated, which is over 1300. And by the way, it's not even close. It's Volkswagen. Okay. Guess who the CEO of Volkswagen is. His name is Oliver Bloom. Okay. He is also the CEO of Porsche. He is a mechanical engineer. And he never, he didn't change. He, he's never stopped being an engineer. Okay. Let's take a look at, I never even actually looked. Uh, what Jim Farley's background is at Ford. Let's see what Jim is. 
Um, so Jim is a oh Jim Farley is a marketing and sales guy. What do you know? Crazy. Crazy. I don't know why that doesn't surprise me. Um, I never looked to see what his background was. Leadership needs to be technologists. And I can't stress that enough. And to Richard Shaw's point, that's the reason why you have to dumb things down for the boardroom. And so the organization that wins, the organization that wins is uh, the organization that does the prettiest presentation with the, the largest distractions with the most number of balloons and kazoos being blown. Um, also, Jim Farley was a looks like a trust fund baby. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Actually, I didn't know that. I, I knew Jim Farley was doing a shitty job at Ford. I just didn't know that uh, he also had no technical capability whatsoever. Imagine if Toyota, was it a Kido Toyota, right? He was the guy, who, the, the previous. Well, there's, a, there's a famous story. I think it was a Kido Toyota. Famous story from um, uh, Sandy Monroe. He's talking about having a dinner with these jet, uh, Toyota executives. Uh, he was in Tokyo. And uh, the question came up. They were talking about like the breakdown. I think it was the Toyota Camry they were talking about. And they were talking about the number of spot welds uh, in, the, in the, uh, the Toyota Camry. And Akita Toyota said, I think I'm almost certain it was Akita. He recited from memory, not only all the, the number of spot welds, but the location of every spot weld on the car. And then he and Sandy Monroe later met after that dinner, after all the executives were gone, to go over how they could approve, how they could improve um, the process of doing all the spot welds that were in the trunk. Okay. I mean, Jim Farley's head would explode if you tried to have that conversation with him. No wonder. I mean, come on. The Ford Lightning gets 80, 80 miles when it's towing to a charge. Come on. Give me a fucking break. Uh, all right, everyone, I appreciate you watching. Um, comment, like, subscribe down below. Um, the comments in the podcast are the most important ones because they're the ones that really drive the next podcast. Okay. Uh, we are going to be doing whiteboard. We're going to be alternating. I don't know if we're going to start it next week. Um, yeah. Where there is ignorance, there is opportunity. This is the quote I took from that interview. Platts. Um, we're going to, we're, we're throwing around the idea of alternating podcasts. So uh, uh, one Tuesday, we do a podcast. The next Tuesday, we release a whiteboard video. One Tuesday, we do the next Tuesday. So every other week we're doing the podcast. And every other week, we're doing a whiteboard video. So if you would comment below on if you like that idea or you like for us to stick with the weekly Q&A and do the podcast and do a whiteboard video, release a whiteboard video at a different time during the week, please let us know. One of the things that I was thinking about doing was we would premiere the whiteboard video every other week. And so we would we'd actually be live streaming it and commenting and I could answer your questions about the whiteboard video in real time. So... 
would love for you guys to put your comments below on that concept where we would do the podcast or video every other week. We'd premiere it and we'd treat it as a live stream um, and we comment on it. So uh, anyway, with that, that's my story. I'm sticking to it and we'll see you next week.